The following is intended only for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to an exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror podcast. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and today we have something special in store for you. Today we'll be immersing ourselves in stories written by Nicholas Perez, a first-time contributor to our show. Before we embark on this eerie journey into Nick Perez's tales, let me introduce you to this charismatic writer. Nick is a self-proclaimed tired desert rat who often grapples with calling himself a writer. Over the past decade, he's dipped his toes into the world of microfiction, scriptwriting, and poetry. In the last five years, he's notched up impressive achievements, writing two short films and crafting three novels. Currently, he's hard at work on a new crime series featuring a hobo clown detective set in 1976 Washington, D.C. And there's more. Nick is preparing to publish a collection of short stories. And he'd like me to tell you that if you ever spot this rat in the wild, he'd be delighted to share a cup of coffee with you. As we venture into Nick's tales, I want to extend my deepest thanks to all of you for tuning into our Halloween special. Your support is what keeps the spirit of Halloween alive in our stories, and I'm grateful for each and every one of you. But here's an exciting note. There are more surprises in store for you beyond what I've already promised. So keep checking back throughout the day. Throughout Today, Halloween, keep checking back. Welcome to the Anthology of Horror Podcast. This first story is titled, Get My Goat. When one is a companion demon such as I, you are faced with certain expectations. Haunt the world of man and wreak havoc upon the mortals, and above all else, serve your mistress or master completely. This is the tale of a horrid girl who did horrible things and was met with a horrible fate. Young Ashley was menacing as any rotten high school girl in the 90s. She believed that there were no consequences for a wrong action, Now a young human ought to know better than to smear wood glue in another girl's hair or place dead salmon in lockers and spread awful and disgusting gossip. The mind of a 17-year-old is rather vulgar. Yet, there was no worse an act than the disrespect inflicted upon our mistress young Susie Walters. The horrible child named Ashley would destroy her property, such as her spelling books or new clothes. Often Ashley would cover her lunch with a swampy concoction of various drinks in the lunchroom, all while advertising her pranks to the surrounding student body who already viewed Susie as an outcast. However, Ashley's final offense was using a shop vac cleaner to suck Susie's ponytail. She had set the cleaner to full blast. The ghastly prank simply landed the monster in Saturday detention for the entire junior year. It was my dear friend Casey, who looked like me, had my build, tiny, bald, red skin, blackened eyes, who came to me with news of Susie's pain. 
and it was then that together we rallied enough resources to enact our mistress's true desires, revenge. It was the first Saturday of the girl's sentence. She was dispatched to clean the entire first floor. I would be certain she did not make it out of the first room. Ashley entered the computer lab and gave a disgusting grunt. Casey and I remained hidden within the ventilation system and watched as she tossed her cleaning caddy to the corner of the room and began to rifle through the teacher's desk. Casey clenched his tiny claw and gave a shrill growl. This pitiful girl has no honor. Patience, my friend. I set down the spell book of Haxon. My cohort then threw down a few petrified bones and crystals. He then lit a single red candle with his finger. I began to mutter from the words from the dark scripture, and soon the text and symbols lifted from the book, blood ink and all. The symbols and text descended through the vent towards Ashley and imprinted upon her skin. She thought it to be a simple bug bite, but our great revenge had now taken flight. We're taught early on in our education that it is just as important to be patient as it is to be active in a haunt. I became excited as I saw the ceiling lights in the room begin to flicker. The panicked look she wore was exquisite. She stood at attention and scanned the room for the light switch. Her attempts proved useless as the lights continued to stutter until the room went dark. We could smell her terrific fear as it beaded off her soul. She had tried for the door handle, but she tried in vain for we had already hexed the threshold to remain shut. Her anxiety would soon manifest into auditory hallucinations. We could hear the menacing thoughts that plagued her head and heart. We heard her father chastising her for her appearance, her mother's disdain for her existence. Countless men commenting upon her, egging her on and feeding into her neurosis. Ashley began to kick at the door while screaming. With every kick, the voices grew louder and more frequent until she finally slammed her head into the door. I waved my claw and ended the tirade of voices and studied the red mark on her forehead. She began to steadily cry as she reached again for the handle, but our game was not yet over. I retrieved a cleaved hoof from my satchel, sprinkled an herb across it, and waved it within the air. A sudden bleeding of a goat grabbed her attention. She stood up and scoured the room for the source of the bleeding. We were even intrigued by the goat's location as it was a mystery after being cast. She paced up and down the desk lanes when she halted her search and remained in place, her face tensed up as she stared at the monitor. It was a splendid sight to see a hell goat displayed on the monitor screen. Hell goats had a perfect red coat. They were gifted with eight black beady eyes and blessed with a six-inch split tongue. Ashley winced as the goat flicked its tongue at her. She dropped down onto the carpet and reached for the power cord and pulled it from the outlet, but this time the terror continued as the hell goat had a steady breath as it unleashed a fantastic bah. Soon all the surrounding 24 monitors switched on, each displaying a hell goat of similar appearance. All eyes fixated on the bumbling girl, while her eyes produced a steady stream of tears as her cries became inaudible. Without delay, goat limbs sprang from the monitors and pulled out the magnificent beasts. The horde of goats towered over the frozen girl. Everything was silent for a moment, there was a stillness that weighed heavy on our minds and on hers. Then the goats made their move. It was hard to see the first set of them trampling her due to the fact that it was not by our own claws. But the next day, there was no trace of the attack, nor of Ashley's existence. Human authorities would try their best to search, but their attempts were futile. 
Casey and I had given Our Lady Susan peace of mind, and soon she would acquire a small group of friends that would help form her own coven. All was well in the world. While our size may never be grandiose, our mighty loyalty will ensure horrible people meet horrible fates. This next one is titled, Romance. Wednesday, August 31st, 2022, 10.40pm. Dear Saint, it took me a few hours, hell, even days for me to figure all this out. The fact is yes, I do want more, I do want you, but we're just in different places in our lives. How are we supposed to carry on? You can't leave your family, and all my husband talks about is how our family will be growing. I know that this doesn't make sense. Believe me when I say I wish I could play dumb, that I could be with you. But there are other players involved. And you're always going on about how I'm such a good person. Well, despite feeling a complete and utter joy in your arms, when the night ends and I go home, I don't feel like a good person. I just feel empty. Like I'm this hollow being, drifting from spot to spot until the beginning of the month comes along and I get to see you again. But I can't hold on to that one hit like some goddamn junkie, so I need to end it now. I'm sorry, and I'll always love you. But this is goodbye. Maybe one day. Love. From Obake. Monday, October 25th, 2027, 5.34am. Saint, I still can't believe it was you in the store today. My heart leapt out of my chest onto the floor in the kids section. I know my husband and son were there behind me, but so much of me wanted to embrace you. It was like nothing had changed. But the fact of the matter is, things have changed. My husband was right. Our family did grow. And the last thing I need is for him to wonder why his mother stresses out about going into town now. I understand that you left your wife, and I'm sorry about your loss, but I need to protect my family. Five years ago, I told you we couldn't be, and I meant it. Please respect my wishes. You don't need to leave town but you do need to leave me alone. From Obake. Wednesday, October 27th, 2027, 7.42 a.m. Hey Saint, I just got home right before my family woke up. What we did still feels unreal. It was so familiar, but new. That moment took me back to our very first time together. How safe I felt, how free. I don't know if I'll be able to see you again like that, but I'll cherish that moment. From Obake. Wednesday, October 27th, 2027, 2.32 p.m. Saint, what the hell? I found out what happened to your wife. The newspaper said she died five years ago, but every report I found said that you went missing. Did you do it? Even if you didn't kill her? You didn't stay to bury her? What the hell kind of person does that to someone they claim to love? I can't. I don't know what to do. I just need to figure this all out. Please respect my wishes. From Obake. Thursday, October 28th, 2027, 6.23pm. This is my last email. I saw you on my street. I kept my eyes towards the road, but I knew you were there skulking about. I don't know what the hell is going on, but I need to protect my family. If you ever come near me, my husband, my son, I won't report you. I'll fucking kill you. Never see me, and never contact me again. I bought a gun. Thank you.
This next one is titled, Sunsets Over Monroeville. A dreadful wind attacks the town of Monroeville. The moon beckoned from on high as its last rays pierced through the halls of the high school. A gunshot echoes through the science department. Within the confines of room 325, a 32 caliber bullet casing rolls on the floor, towards Mr. Davis's body lying before a young couple. Emily Stanton trembles in her strawberry-striped dress. She clutches onto the right shoulder of her love, Joe Lind, whose hand is fused to the handle of a snubbed revolver. The wind crashes against the classroom's shattered windows. Emily's grip loosens as she falls onto her knees. She buries into the back of Joe's pant leg and unleashes a wave of tears. Joe's arm hangs. He wears a vacant stare as the blood flows from Mr. Davis's body. Emily sends out a massive wail that is soon overtaken by distant police sirens. Joe and Emily sit beside one another in the back of a squad car. Emily blankets her face with a stream of tears. She purses her lips and looks from her restless hands to Joe, who remains like a statue and stone-faced. The car comes to a stop and soon Joe is moved out of the vehicle and is escorted through the Monroeville police station. Emily follows behind. They pass officers and offenders as they are led to a bench outside of booking. Joe sits as Emily walks off to the interrogation room. Joe raises his head to look at the ceiling. Joe. Joe brings his gaze from the ceiling and focuses on Detective Garrett, who sports a brown wool suit. The two are inside the dimly lit interrogation room four. Garrett taps his pen on the table and leans forward. Joe, you need to tell me what happened, Garrett persists. Joe rests his face in his palms and takes a quivering breath. He was following her. He was following us, Joe states. Joe reveals his face to Garrett. His jaw hangs as he processes his next thought. Why? Garrett asks. Joe releases a pained chuckle. Because he was a sick, filthy, demented pervert. He would press up against her during class, left photos in her locker. He followed us up to the Star Road on prom night. Garrett furrows his brow. Joe cringes and says, He took Emily to his class tonight, too. Joe throws his hands onto the table and shouts, I had to stop him. So I stole my dad's gun. I, I had to stop him, and I... Joe stops and grinds his teeth. He was going to hurt her, and I did what I had to. Garrett exits the room and walks down the hall, turns the corner, and arrives at the middle room. He enters to meet with Detective Green. Same story, Garrett says. Garrett stares through the two-way mirror into room three, where Emily sits with her head resting on her arms. Garrett pinches the bridge of his nose. Emily's parents, Janet and Thomas, stand at the front desk. Janet repeats, where's Emily? Joe's father, Earl, stands with his hands at his sides. He locks eyes with Joe, who is being uncuffed by an officer. Joe then moves his gaze to Emily, standing beside her crying parents. Earl opens the front door to their farmhouse. The two men enter. Earl shuts the door, moves to a nearby lamp, and pulls the chain. The room illuminates and reveals a scowl on Earl's face. He looks over at Joe, who waits near the staircase. Joe turns to face Earl, only to be met with a fist and he drops to the ground. Joe stands on his front porch now, a lit clove cigarette in hand and a fresh bruise planted on his right cheek. He stares off into the brush near his house. Joe. The sound of his name rides with the wind and repeats. Joe. 
He breathes heavily and looks over to a large oak a few yards away. Emily moves from behind the tree and whispers, Joe. She beckons to him. Joe drops his cigarette and jogs to her. Emily and Joe walk down a small path, Joe's hands in his pockets, Emily's arms crossed over her chest. She moves her hair from her face. I can't believe any of it, Joe states. Joe, this doesn't feel right, Emily says. Joe just hangs his head and stops in his tracks. He turns and faces Emily. What are you talking about? I won't leave until it's right. This shouldn't have happened. You need to tell the truth. Joe tenses and then shouts. What's the truth, Emily? What? What? I would have done anything to protect you. That monster tried to take you from me. He tried to hurt you. It was him. Emily remains still and keeps her eyes on the ground and utters, I'm not going back to that school, Joe. Joe calms himself and steps towards Emily. Joe. Joe stops and turns to see his father standing with a burdened and pitiful grimace. Joe looks to Emily and gestures for her to leave. Emily turns away and continues down the road and Joe walks back towards his home and passes his father and then heads straight into the house. Joe lies back in his bed. He focuses on the ceiling. He rubs his face and lets out a groan. The clock on his bedside table ticks and ticks and ticks. Joe shuts his eyes as he keeps a steady breath. The bed creaks and the sheets shuffle around. Joe opens his eyes to see his bed disheveled. He looks around and the silence hangs for a moment before a wail is unleashed through the room. A thunderous roar of footsteps shake the floorboards. Joe's nearby bookshelf collapses downward. Pictures shatter on the ground as the glass flies across the room. Joe jolts up in a panic and scans the room. He slips out of bed to observe the destruction before being struck in the back by a book. As he recovers and gains his ground, a mass of books from the opposite shelves fly towards Joe. He ducks as the hard-covered predators crash against the wall, then to the floor. The drawers from Joe's desk began to rattle. Joe, hugging the floor, lifts his head to see the drawers shoot out like cannonballs. He covers his head. Suddenly the drawers stop mid-air, and the contents soon float in the air. Pencils, letter openers, every sharp object found within such a realm hangs above Joe. He looks up in terror. Gravity takes hold again as the lethal force rains down towards him. Joe scrambles to get to his feet and rushes towards the front door, only to drop a few feet away. Now back on the ground, he looks over his shoulder to see a number two pencil lodged into his right calf. In the morning light, Joe limps up the front steps of the high school. He enters the building to see officers scattered throughout the halls. As Joe navigates down the halls, he's plagued by an army of eyes locked onto his. Whispers flood through the halls and move into a powerful crescendo as a steady stream of voices begin to proclaim his name, Joe, 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 over and over again. Joe stands before his locker, his hand on the handle. He stands frozen. Vince Domingo stands beside Joe. Vince repeats, Joe, are you okay? The silence lingers and acts as a soundtrack for the scene. Joe blinks, turns his head, and locks eyes with Vince. The average audio of a busy day in the halls of Monroeville soon resurfaces over the dominating silence. I'm fine, Joe responds. Vince sets his hand on Joe's shoulder. Vince and Joe sit on a bench outside of the student commons and Joe stares off as various students buzz past. Joe clasps onto his notebook. Vince takes in a breath. 
What are you going to do, Vince asks. Joe searches himself. All of this is going to continue until I clock out. I'm heading out of town after graduation. Vince nods. Joe stands up, gathers his things, and looks back at Vince. I guess I just need to move on. Later that night, back at home, Joe is in his room cleaning up the wreckage from the strange attack. A tap grabs Joe's attention. He looks up and remains frozen. Another tap shoots from the window. Joe creeps over, only to hear another tap. He opens the window and peers his head outside. Outside remains nothing but a few trees, bushes, and the cold night. Joe leans over the windowsill and tap. He jolts up suddenly and strikes his head on the window. Embarrassed by his mistake, he shuts the window. He stares at his reflection in the window and gets lost in thought. Soon he makes out an image of Emily and himself content and embracing one another. In a fit of rage, he plunges his fist through the window. Blood-soaked shards fall to the floor. His dad Earl rushes through the door and stands before the scene. Joe clings to his blood-drenched hand and stares back into his father's combative gaze. The next day at the high school, Joe arrives late that morning and walks through the halls. He passes a group of classmates outside of room 325. The female students attend to their tears and Joe simply tightens his hand into a fist and takes flight back to the student commons. What do you mean? Vince asks him. Vince sits on the grass besides Joe. The two are below a flourishing cherry tree. How dare they mourn that monster, Joe declares. Joe, it's okay. He stands on his feet and runs his hand through his hair and screams out to the sky. No, it's not okay. Vince remains unaffected. Everyone is asking if I'm okay, if somehow this left me scarred. Joe turns to face Vince. I was protecting her. I was there for her. And nobody can see that, that that was a conscious choice. Everyone should be glad that he's gone. Vince tightens his face and looks back up at Joe. This instance would be the last time they would ever speak. Knowing this, Vince shuts his eyes and asks, Are you going to go to the funeral tomorrow? Joe laughs, shakes his head, and smiles at Vince. He covers his mouth, collects himself, and snarls. Go to hell. Later that night in his room, Joe sits beside the broken window and hums a jig. Amongst him lies papers and objects scattered across the floor, chaotically arranged as if to mimic his thoughts. He reaches for his nearby yearbook and flips through the pages. He stops on the couple's spread. He looks over to his photo with Emily and Joe grips the bridge of his nose and curls forward. Joe flings the book across the room and screams out. It's now the brightest day to date. The light trails down through the tree line onto Monroeville Cemetery. There was a gathered mass of faculty students and many of the townspeople, such as Joe and Emily's parents. Father Spencer, a man of great age, stands before the morning, his leather Bible in hand. Father Spencer takes a breath. Leonard Davis was a man on this earth who lost his way from the Lord and his way on these grounds. As Father Spencer continues, Joe is seen from the far end of the cemetery. He hangs back behind an oak and carves his hand into the bark. The wind carries up and dances around him. Joe. Joe rocks forward and rams his head against the oak. Joe. Joe falls to the ground and cradles his fist. Joe. Joe's ears perk up. He scrambles to turn around only to see Emily tower above him. Her heart sinks and tears collect atop her cheeks. They soon walk past rows of tombstones. 
So you're never coming back? Joe inquires. Joe looks over at Emily, who remains distant and stares at the grass below. Emily nods and says, I can't. Joe takes a moment to think. He halts his step and digs his feet into the ground. She soon stops and looks back at him. Emily's smile reaches cheek to cheek and wears the burden of everything that has happened between them. You need to forgive yourself. For what? For saving you? For protecting you? Emily leans back against a tombstone, retains her smile, and weeps. Joe. Joe remains still before being overtaken by a flurry of ghastly images, screams, and a single gunshot. Joe rushes down the halls of the high school. He arrives at the door to room 325. He looks through the locked-down window, grits his teeth, and enters. Please just... Joe stops and stares at the scene unfolding. Emily against the desk, kicking and swiping at Mr. Davis approaching her. Emily, you have the wrong idea, Joe snarls. Back the fuck away from her. Mr. Davis and Emily both to Joe. Emily, get over here. Mr. Davis composes himself and adjusts his necktie. Joseph, I understand what this looks like, but... Joe shouts, shut the fuck up. Joe pulls the thirty-two snub revolver from his pants and points it at Mr. Davis. How does this look? Mr. Davis takes a step back with his hands raised. Emily adjusts her dress strap and looks at Joe with a horrified look. Joe, put the gun down. Joe does not hear the plea of his love, only the sound of his motivation to claim the life of a filthy man. Shoot him, Joe. Joe. He sets a second hand on the grip of the revolver to take aim. Emily pleads, Joe. Mr. Davis takes a step back and begs, Joseph, shoot him, Joe. Joe, don't. Joe shuts his eyes. Joseph, please. Shoot him. With a fraction of a second, Joe pulls the trigger, and as the bullet exits the barrel and charges forward, Joe opens his eyes to see Emily standing in its path. Before he can shout, the bullet punctures Emily, Mr. Davis, and the window of room 325. Joe's two victims fall to the floor like dominoes, one after the other. Joe drops to his knees before Emily and shakes her body. Emily. Emily looks up at Joe. Emily's eyes glaze as if all life is vacated. Joe clings to her corpse and unleashes a painful wail. He buries his face into her chest and becomes lost in sorrow. Joe. Joe looks up to find himself kneeling on the grass of the cemetery. Standing before him now is Detective Garrett and two uniformed officers. Joe looks up to Garrett. I think we should talk about that night again. Joe turns his gaze from the officers to the funeral, his eyes locked onto a large photo of Emily's senior photo beside a closed casket. Teary-eyed, Joe smiles at the photo of Emily, smiling back at him. As we bring another captivating episode of the Anthology of Horror podcast to a close, I want to extend my deepest thanks to each and every one of you for being a part of this chilling journey. Your support and listenership means the world to us, and we appreciate it more than words can express. For those who would like to stay connected and get a behind-the-scenes look at what goes on off the airwaves, don't forget to follow me on Instagram at DukeLandis17. It's the perfect way to stay engaged and get an exclusive look into our world of eerie storytelling. If you're interested in taking a piece of the eerie with you, don't miss the chance to explore our merchandise store at aohpmerch.com. 
However, there is a special note. Today is the last day to purchase the limited edition mug shirt. If you've had your eye on this unique item, now's the time to grab it before it disappears into the shadows. Thank you very much for being a part of our chilling adventure, and may your nights be filled with the echoes of our spooky tales. Stay tuned for more eerie narratives on the Anthology of Horror podcast. Thank you. Stay spooky, and remember to check back later today for more surprises. You won't want to miss them. Thank you again.
Yeah.